Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we are talking to esteemed immunologist, microbiologist, and biochemist, Dr. Russell Jaffe, on COVID-19 and how we can go about strengthening our immune system in these trying times. What I hope you will appreciate about this discussion is the non-dogmatic tone of Dr. Jaffe and my curiosity as I go about asking the questions that are on the lips of many of us. Of course, there is so much information and media coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment that is increasingly difficult to not get incredibly anxious about the situation, nor know what to trust and how to act. Dr. Jaffe, who has significant authority to speak to the topic of viruses, immune health, infectious diseases, vaccines, and the like, brings a balance to the hysteria and fear driven largely through news and social media, where bad news and shock factor sells. You will hear Dr. Jaffe acknowledge the seriousness of the situation we find ourselves in, but has a very different perspective on what the problem is. He shares the realities of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the COVID-19 stats, the testing efficacy, and how our health is the problem, not the aggressiveness of the virus. The most interesting part of this discussion is the focus on host hospitality and host resilience. This notion that two thirds of the UK and the US have compromised health and increased hospitality to viruses have an ill effect on our bodies. I'm pretty sure you appreciate the candor education on the human body and the practical guidance for improving your immune system offered by Dr. Jaffe. If you're curious, check out the show notes for a full rundown of exactly what we covered on this episode. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please do us a massive favor and leave us a quick five-star review or rating on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choosing. So here goes, time for invaluable education on viruses, immune system health, and COVID-19 with Dr. Russell Jaffe. Alrighty guys, today we are fortunate enough to have on the show a doctor, Dr. Russell Jaffe. Now, Dr. Jaffe was honoured as an international scientist of 2003 from IBC in Oxford here in England for his lifetime contribution to clinical medicine, biochemistry, immunology and integrative health policy. He's also the author of over 100 scientific articles and he is the founder of, hopefully I'm saying this right, PERQ? Well, we call it PERQ, P-E-R-Q-U-E. It's an acronym. Uh, It sounds like PERQ if it was Spanish, but it's not. Uh, it's called PERC. That, that's the, the preferred pronunciation. But again, look it up, PERC.com. <laughs> you'll, find, you'll find a rich trove of information that leads to uh, safer and more effective natural products. Fantastic. Uh, an integrative health company for sure. So it's an absolute honor to have you on the show, uh, Dr. Jaffe. Uh, I might dip into calling you Russ a few times if you don't mind. By all means. Fantastic. Great. Good stuff. Well, Guys, we are recording this on the 10th of April. As everyone knows, I don't need to remind everyone, we are on a global lockdown as we attempt to control the global pandemic of the COVID-19 infectious disease. 
we're undergoing significant duress and anxiety, as well as monumental destruction to our modern life as we currently know it, at least temporarily. And people are worried about their health, rightly so, about their survival. People are turning to the internet to understand more about the human immune system and how they can strengthen theirs in an effort to increase their resilience. So today, um, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to shed some light on that subject. But first, I think it would be really helpful if you're up for it, uh, Dr. Jaffe, to really get your take initially on the Syrian seriousness of what we're facing. Be as candid as you like. I really just want to get a sense of um, whether you think we as a people and as governments are under or over-responding currently to the COVID-19 situation. Well, I'm not in government, although I was in government service when I was at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center in Bethesda, Maryland for many years and stayed on the permanent staff. Um, I'm going to take the clinical and scientific aspect of your question. I'm going to set aside uh, which governments are doing what at what moment, et cetera, under what, uh, under what, uh, on on what basis. Uh, Because in general, I find most people in government are not physician scientist colleagues. There are a few of them, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and similar. And I served with him when he was at NIAID. I was at the clinical center. So he's been there a very long time, to his credit. Uh, The bottom line is this. We know who is at risk. The people who live in air pollution, smoke tobacco and or vape. Vaping, I think that's an okay term in the UK, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's a risk factor. So is prior lung disease, heart disease treated with medicine, and a poor immune system. Now, age is often cited, but I can tell you age is not the issue. The issue is host hospitality. If you're hospitable and get exposed, you're going to be harmed. If you're not hospitable and get exposed, you won't be harmed. Okay. Okay. And do you feel that we are appropriately responding as a people? Um, and I guess this is not this is not meant to be rhetorical or trying to lead you towards a, no, a difficult no, conversation. I, I, it, no, it's, it, it's an important conversation. It, 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 it only gets difficult if you have chosen sides, which I do not. I'm in favor of health and healthy resilience. I know that viral changes happen, like the prior SARS, MERS, and before that, others, not the least of which was tuberculosis. And before that, because I'm a student of medicine and science and therefore a student of scientific history. So we know that social distancing is important. We know that bringing your essential nutrients up is important. Getting restorative sleep and staying hydrated, being sure that you practice a relaxation response and don't get too stressed out. Because just being afraid reduces your host defense. Mm And just knowing that you're doing everything possible and listening to the people who are leading people from risk to health is what we recommend. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for your position on that. It's uh, a really, um, it's, I think it's important to see set. So 
Why don't we start with, I'd like to kind of use this almost as a 101 for myself and others. So why don't we start with what are viruses and bacteria? You know, are they, uh, how do they interact with our body? Are they in our bodies? Can you just start with the basics and we will hopefully go a little bit deeper and more specific as the conversation moves on? Surely. Um, There are many categories of helpful and also of harmful bacteria, viruses, prions, parasites, mycoplasma, and others. Most do no harm and are commensal. They're present, but they're not in charge and they do not cause ill health. Harmful organisms reveal defects in host immune defense and repair responses. And much of my work has been to identify those defects and correct them through natural essential um, vitamins, minerals, cofactors, things that your body can't make that you have to take in from the outside. And because of stress, because of the toxins we marinate in in the 21st century, because of a number of factors, availability of these essentials is less today than it was before, but the need for them has gone up dramatically. So that means that even if you're eating a near perfect diet, that is foods you can digest, assimilate and eliminate without immune burden, and you have a healthy digestive transit time and a healthy digestive system, you could still be at risk because you're not getting enough of the A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Those are the letters that correspond to the categories of essential nutrients that we have to take in by supplementation because as I said, even if you're, well, if you're living on the top of a perfect mountain with a perfect biodynamic food forest and perfect relationships and perfect hydration and plenty of restorative sleep and mindfulness practices, you're exempt. But that would be mm. so rare a person that I don't, I only know two or three who qualify uh, in that way. Yeah, yeah. So what, 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 what are the differences between viruses and bacteria? Oh, viruses do not have the ability to live outside the host. Bacteria can proliferate either inside or outside the host. So bacteria are living organisms. Viruses only become alive, if you will, when they find a hospitable host to feed off of or take control of. Okay, and I've heard about this idea of viruses um, injecting their RNA into a host cell. Can you just, uh, without, uh, we, we have somewhat of a technical audience. It's sort of a, a variety of uh, skills and geekiness, but generally let's just go a little bit further, one step further, if you don't mind, and help us understand uh, the pathology or the, 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 how viruses want to exist and proliferate. How do they go about doing that? Well, first I was trained in internal medicine, then I'm a doubly board certified clinical laboratory pathologist, so that's an appropriate question for me. Good. The answer is the answer is kind of straightforward, although there's a lot of details. On the surface of your lungs, of your respiratory, of the parts of your body that breathe, there is a surface liquid. It's very thin. If it gets thick, it's called mucus, but there's a it's not dry. It's wet. And inside that wet surface, there should be resistance factors. You can call these defensins or opsonins. There's lots of technical words for them. It includes secretory IgA. It includes a variety of natural defense 
elective protective mechanisms. Notice I said elective. If the body is well nourished, if you're in a high degree of health in regard to your cells, then the elective protective mechanisms operate both in your lungs and your digestive tract and on your skin. Because you may think of your skin as a wrapper, but it's actually the largest organ in your body and it is an accessory organ of excretion when toxic matter builds up. And you can often, if you're a really observant diagnostician, you can look at the surfaces, surfaces of the mouth and lungs, surfaces of the skin and intestines, and predict who's at risk. These are the people deficient in the essential factors that I referenced above, and who is resistant. So there's one aspect which is host hospitality, and the other is exposure. If you're not hospitable and you get exposed, either nothing happens or you make a protective immune response and you're now protected hopefully for life. And on the other hand, if you're not making these elective protective mechanisms and if this RNA virus, the corona family of viruses, get to a very specific docking station on the surface of cells, which they should not get to, but if they do, mm -hmm. they can actually bind to what's called ACE2. That's an acronym for a kinin enzyme. It breaks bradykinin into kinins. That's a little technical, but you said your audience is a bit We technical. can handle it. <laughs> okay. And let me explain that almost everyone who writes about the subject does not know the subject well enough. Okay. So they write as if this RNA corona family of viruses is particularly infectious and aggressive. Actually, it's not. And it is very clear uh, from recent articles uh, that were authored by Amory Levins and Eric Rasmussen on medium.com, like the user's guide to vitamin C uh, and how to reduce your host risk uh, hospitality. We can do an awful lot um, in the ways in which I referenced above, and I can go into the details if helpful, uh, to resist, to become resilient, and therefore not hospitable to the catastrophic consequences that you can see on almost every media channel, almost at any time of the day. Mm. Okay, well, this is interesting. Let's let's continue this thread. So we speak about um, if you don't have a hus hospitable, or sorry, you don't have a, a enough resilience, and the viruses are uh, unable to dock in areas perhaps where they shouldn't, there becomes a proliferation, right? Using our host cells to proliferate uh, their genetic material. In doing so, I guess that's where we start to see the cascade effects, right? Where this virus starts to proliferate in our body and in our lungs. Help us understand how a normal and highly functional immune system would respond. Uh, I, you know, I've heard, you know, cells such as T cells, NK cells, B cells, cytokines, all those kind of things being mentioned before. Perhaps we can go into what are the defense mechanisms in a healthy body with a healthy immune system to stop or thwart a virus from um, taking over and causing us harm. With regard to our immune defense and repair system, it has two major components or aspects. One is called innate this means what we call dendritic cells. These are the cells that wiggle around and touch all parts of your body. And when part is worn out or recognized as foreign, the innate immune system consumes and recycles without illness the invader. Mm -hmm. Now remember, this is responsible both for repair and defense. And if you overwhelm defense for too long, you'll defer repair. 
And if you defer repair, then you get repair deficit conditions known as inflammatory uh, and or self-attacking conditions known as autoimmune. And we know that people with what I would call repair deficit conditions, what most people call inflammatory conditions, are more at risk. And people with autoimmune self-attacking conditions are more at risk. But beyond the innate immune system, when the innate immune system can't keep up, there is an adaptive or um, only when called upon reserve system. And the adaptive uh, amplified response helps overcome the foreign invader in the better cases. And there are T cells that respond directly to the foreign invader. Then there are B cells that respond through antibody production. Mm -hmm. Then there are NK and cytotoxic cells, natural killer and cytotoxic T cells that identify and eliminate abnormal or transfected cells. Then there are cytokines, which are fat-derived amplifying molecules to help this immune defense and repair response. There are macrophages, granulocytes, fibroblasts, eosinophils, basophils, and monocytes. And we can measure all of those in routine blood specimens. And it's normal and appropriate for us to have these layers of adaptive defense to foreign invaders that are trying to do something to our host cells, to our cells in a way which we otherwise wouldn't like. Uh, and that's healthy. And, and yeah. are, we, are we doing that all the time? Are we, you know, constantly responding to bacteria and or viruses in this way and not necessarily seeing symptoms day to day? Well, yes, the innate immune system is constantly at your service to defend you, to neutralize and recycle anything foreign. And it's also responsible for repairing you from daily wear and tear. Most of us don't give the immune system the essential nutrients so that instead of each of the innate immune system cells being able to engulf and recycle 50 viral or bacterial invaders, it's called phagocytic index for any of you who want to go and measure that in a laboratory, healthy people take in 50 foreign invaders, bacteria, viruses, coronaviruses, any virus, um, and recycle it without the, the virus taking over or the bacteria causing illness. On the other hand, many people who are hospitable, their dendritic cells, their innate immune system can only take in one or two, not 50. In fact, very often the innate immune system is so underserved, it's so undernourished, it, it lacks so many of the essential antioxidants, minerals, essential cofactors and the like that you are a walking petri dish if you will you are a hospitable host as mel brooks as the 2000 year old man used to say in a comedy routine don't do that everyone should have enough of the essential uh, factors that their innate and adaptive immune system are topped up that's a phrase to the point where you're not hospitable if you look at every thousand people, say in the United Kingdom, you will find that probably a third are not hospitable and two thirds are because they have not corrected essential deficits. And are all of these cells important? Yes, they're all important because it turns out that whether you talk about bacteria as a category or viruses as a category, there are a lot of different subcategories and they have particular characteristics. And we, over a very long period of evolutionary time, have developed multiple adaptive responses when and as needed to keep us well 
and happy. Talk to me a little bit about B cells. So if I understand it rightly, and apologies if my very naive um, perspective is wrong here, but um, these are memory cells. So they're, 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 as you mentioned, it's part of our antibody response. So once we come into contact with some fire, form of viral or infectious disease, once we can respond and recover from there, we will have some memory to effectively be immune. And this is what I guess we we categorize vaccines as and also having things like chickenpox previously. Can you just talk a little bit about how our, our defenses continue to, I, I guess, strengthen over time if we're, if we're healthy? Well, remember that the innate response is your first line defense. And if you have a healthy innate response, you will not need to call the adaptive system. But if you call the adaptive system, both B cells and T cells come. The B cells are antibody producing cells. They recognize through antigen presenting cells, the foreign invader. It comes into contact with what's called the MHC locus, a certain kinase, a phosphorylating uh, enzyme activates. This is something that we have been studying in cell culture since the early 1980s. Um, and so when you ask about B cells, you're asking about the ability of the adaptive immune system when needed mm -hmm. to recognize and remember the foreign invader, like a childhood illness, that hopefully conveys lifetime protection through neutralizing beneficial protective antibodies. Now, there are different kinds of antibodies that are not helpful, but you're talking about the helpful memory antibodies produced by B cells that become plasma cells. The plasma cells are dedicated factories to produce specific kinds of protective antibodies. And you want those to be neutralizing and beneficial and not complement fixing and harmful. Okay. And do vaccines generally um, encourage or accelerate our ability uh, to have these antibodies in our body and therefore become immune to certain conditions? Well, vaccines, in order to be effective, have to paralyze your innate immune system for several weeks so that the adaptive immune system can recognize and respond to what you have mm -hmm. uh, contributed or injected in the vaccine. And then in doing so, we, we goal, have that memory. Goal, well, that's the goal. And if you look very carefully, you find out that that very often does happen. Then there are some people who don't respond. That's not good. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who have either a repair deficit inflammatory or a self-attacking autoimmune response, which is also not good. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we're going to get into that. This is, this is really interesting stuff. Thank you for um, really starting to frame this, in my mind at least. So let's talk a little bit about the microbiome. And, you know, um, in my own exploration of this subject over the last couple of years there's obviously much we don't know about the microbiome uh, but what we do know generally is that it's 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 net positive if we care for it uh, we eat the right foods and you know we, we have the right lifestyle factors um but i also hear that you know we are teeming with viruses uh, there's something called the virome i believe and you know maybe eight percent of our genes are actually contributed via this virome can you talk a little bit about how we operate day to day, walk around as living, breathing, you know, viruses and bacteria in our body, and yet it's not a problem. Well, that's why I was referencing earlier that most of these foreign things are commensal. They're present. They're not harmful. The microbiome is today a fancier word for what we used to call digestion. 
And in some of my lectures, I point out that you get paid more today if you say microbiome than digestion, but you're really <laughs> talking about the same thing. So when we do eat foods, whole foods, that we can digest, assimilate and eliminate without immune burden, then our microbiome is strong, resistant, resilient, and has multiple ways of protecting you just in case you got exposed to something foreign and harmful. Now, when we have maldigestion, dysbiosis, atrophy, and enteropathy, which is a loss of the intestinal lining, then we become hospitable and vulnerable. And that's the microbiome that most people are uh, talking about because that's what pathologists and clinicians deal with. But please understand that nature, nurture, and wholeness should be applied before interventions, mm -hmm. that yes, prebiotics, which is digestive fiber, probiotics, which is healthy bugs, and symbiotics, which is energy for the intestinal wall to repair, are part of physiology. And in the world that I um, advocate, you would practice physiology before pharmacology. And just to say again what I just said, good crowds out bad. And good, I'm saying, are the good prebiotic, probiotic, symbiotics. And if you have enough of those, and this was only recently documented in multiple labs around the world, if you have enough healthy prebiotics and probiotics, you will crowd out the pathogens and prevent them from causing illness. Unfortunately, as you say, we are, through lifestyle factors and dietary choices over Western cultures across decades, uh, many of us are walking in a compromised state. Uh, is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely a fair statement. Uh, in the United Kingdom, my best understanding of others' work uh, is that about one-third of people are really healthier and resistant because their innate immune system is protecting them. And about two-thirds of people, because of a convenience lifestyle, a processed dietary lifestyle, a stress lifestyle, an exposure to air pollution and or tobacco or vaping, etc., cetera, uh, make them progressively more hospitable, progressively more susceptible. Now, you can be hospitable for a long time and not exposed, but if you're hospitable and then you get exposed, trouble is coming. Mm, okay, okay. So trying to decode this and understand the messages you, you're giving me, you're being very explicit, but I'm tr just trying to kind of build the narrative for me. It is really your focus, your um, your concern is less about the virus or viruses and more concern about our hospitability, our resilience, our robustness when it comes to our immune system. That's exactly right. The last three or four decades of my career has been devoted to identifying host hospitality factors and reducing them, but also identifying host resilience and resistance factors and advocating for them. Okay. Okay. Why don't we talk a little bit about COVID-19 or, or uh, COVID-2? Um, can, you, can you explain what, what's going on with this? What, why, you know, because we, we've just spoken about the fact there are lots of viruses that are kicking around in our bodies today and we interact with on a daily basis. And as you say, mo for most part, we should be robustly defending against those or they, they can be supportive of our, of our health, actually. But this is seeming not to be the case. And of course, there is a global response and many people are being struck down either with infection or even fatality. What's going on with COVID-19? Can you give us a little bit more color to that specifically? 
Well, COVID-19 is the short name for a coronavirus. There's a family of viruses known as respiratory RNA viruses, coronaviruses. The specific issue with COVID-19 is that unlike COVID-1 through 18, if you are hospitable, the response is strong and hurts you. Whereas other coronaviruses, if you get exposed, you might have a mild flu or you might feel punked for a day. You might need to take a nap, but you'll recover. Clearly, COVID-19 is identifying for us the hospitable people in society. There are too many of them. Mm. And what does it attack? Well, it attaches to the surface of the lungs only in people who don't have those surface protective obstinance, defensins, secretory IgA, uh, and, 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 and other helpful cytokines. It induces a response that reduces healthy oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange, and that's a catastrophe. What about when people say actually there are there are reports of seemingly healthy individuals that have not had any pre-existing diagnosed conditions? That's different from they might actually be compromised, but they haven't been diagnosed as being compromised previously, young and old who are coming unstuck either with being incredibly ill or even dying. So what do you say to that? What I say is what I said before, but I'm going to say it in a different way. If you have a healthy, innate, and adaptive immune defense and repair system and get exposed to COVID-19 or any infection, your innate immune system We'll put it in the lysosomal recycling center of your cells, break it down to building blocks that your body can use, no ill health. If you're susceptible, but only a little bit, and there are people who are marginally hospitable, not catastrophically hospitable, mm -hmm. then you will have a flu-like response, which is what a lot of people get, and recover. Although it helps to be well hydrated, and yes, chicken soup has been shown to be helpful, and so has a whole number of things, starting with hydration and restorative sleep, as well as uh, mindfulness practices that reduce distress and mm -hmm. breathing. It turns out that most people underventilate. And as one who was in that category myself, I have through practice trained myself to not hyperventilate, but to just move my diaphragm and expand my lungs and then move the air out because it turns out that stale air is bad for your lungs. So I think we have it backwards. I think we're assuming that the external agent is the, is the um, aggressive one, when in fact it's just a marker for host hospitality. And yes, most of the people who are hospitable do not know that their lifestyle, what they eat, drink, think, and do, is making them hospitable. And they should change that to reduce their hospitality. See, I guess the nuance here, um, because I, I just want to be very clear in terms of my position here, Russ, is that I, um, I don't fear death, and I, I mean that genuinely. Um, I, I don't have any kind of existential kind of issue going on, or um, I feel good about my ability to survive. And if if that was to be removed, I, I, I I'm I'm quite emotionally robust with this. Therefore, I've not fallen into the the fear and anxiety that I know is plaguing many people. But many people are fearful and anxious about their own survival. Um, as well as obviously the, uh, the negative uh, news that they're seeing on how it's affecting others in their society. But when I, when I look through this, 
Um, I can't help but to feel that we are, that, that there is this sense that we can come unstuck, any any one of us, and this is some deadly virus. And it's not, and the immune system is only part of the story, really. The bigger story is that this virus is incredibly strong and we should all be fearful of our life if we came well, in contact with that. And I, I, I feel that's, I feel that's overhyped, but obviously I don't know. Do you feel that's well, overhyped? Let me tell you the truth and then you decide on the answer to your question. The truth about COVID-19, and because of my academic colleagues globally, globally, I do track this data almost on a daily basis. I can tell you that only the hospitable, that means essential nutrient, overstressed, slightly dehydrated, uh, tired people who don't get restorative sleep, they are the hospitable people at any age. Mm -hmm. But if you look globally at the data about COVID-19, it's not really a very aggressive virus. Mm -hmm. I understand what the media is conveying, but let's look at the facts for a moment. And I understand that facts tend to be a little bit uninteresting and dry, but they remain facts. And I can go back to the previous two potential pandemics, SARS and MERS, and I can talk about COVID-19 because we are beginning to get enough data. First and foremost, <clears throat> less than 0.1% of the people who are exposed die. That is less than from the annual flu in the United States or the United Kingdom. So this is not even a very aggressive virus, but it is a new virus. And when you have a new virus, lots of people have not previously been exposed and mounted a healthy immune response. Now, let's get more specific. For every case that gets diagnosed, there are four to 10 mild, benign cases where people can protect themselves because their immune system is robust for everyone who gets sick. And yes, it's a catastrophe when anyone dies, but listen to what I said, because I'm gonna say it again, less than 0.1% of the people who are exposed get a catastrophic response. Every one of those is a tragedy, especially for the individual and their family. And just for full disclosure, I had a near-death experience about five and a half years ago. So I, too, came very close to death and am robustly healthier now, partly because I took my own advice afterwards. It is easier to preach than practice, as you probably know. So when you look at the facts, COVID doesn't look so aggressive or pathologic or uh, infectious, although it is new. Most people haven't been exposed and protected from it. And if you listen to the media, you would be afraid or very afraid or maybe very, very afraid because there aren't many people who are internists, that is clinicians and laboratorians. And in, in my case, I was at one time a clinical microbiologist. So I'm very familiar with these agents, whether we talk about bacteria, viruses or others. And in regard to the critical point that I think you raised, what about the individual who looks healthy on the outside and is struck down by this coronavirus? Thus far, in the past and in the present, every one of those cases that my colleagues investigated had 
comorbidities. They had predispositions. So age is not important. Yes, young people sometimes get ill and they might look healthy on the outside, but a lot of people walk around and they look healthy, but they're still hospitable. Mm -hmm. So reducing host hospitality is a critical opportunity that is being overlooked because we are looking to fight with an external agent and find some treatment or therapy or prescriptive solution to that external agent. And I have found it much more effective to strengthen the host and then let the body do what it is designed to do. Yeah, that's great. That's great said, um, Russ. And I, I, in my own understanding, just kind of playing a, a thought experiment through, you know, I know in the UK, at least, we're, we're advised if uh, you present the symptoms, uh, unless absolutely necessary, don't come to the hospital. And therefore, these individuals are not necessary, they're not being tested. Uh, and they're not being tracked in terms of outcomes. So if there's a large proportion of the population that are experiencing symptoms and recovering, that's not part of the data. What's part of the data are the people that walk through the door and get tested. Uh, and then as a percentage of those, some may um, may die. And, and that's, I guess, where we draw the percentage of recovery and fatality. Is that correct? Or are we, are we no, a little more advanced no, on how we're working no. things out? We, yes, yes, Steve, we are a little more advanced. Okay. And what, said, what I said before has been documented and will continue to be well documented as more millions of tests are done. And we do need to do community widespread testing from reliable tests, because if the test isn't sensitive or specific, then don't do it. And unfortunately, let's some touch of on the that tests, in a second. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, many of the tests that have been rushed into commerce have not been adequately uh, proven to be sensitive. That is, if you have the problem, it detects it. Uh, and specific, which means if you don't have the problem, it could be falsely positive. So we need accurate testing. There are some accurate tests around. But let me give you an example. The PCR tests, these yes. are the polymerase chain reaction rapid response tests. If you take the swab from the nose, or you take the swab from the cheek, or you take the swab from the throat, or you take the swab from the sputum, you get different results. And in one study that has just been started between Seattle and uh, NYU uh, in New York City, people will be doing nasal swabs every day for 21 days. And I can predict as a clinical researcher that there's going to be a very high dropout rate because if I'm feeling bad, you can get me to do one nasal swab and I'm grateful if you go and measure that right away and tell me the results. But if you say, because it's not comfortable to do a proper nasal swab, that you're going to do that every day for 21 days, I'm telling you it's going to be a high dropout rate and that's going to wound the study design. So specimens become very important where you get the specimen from, how it's analyzed and so forth. And yes, we have the ability to amplify responses using the PCR techniques, um, but we're still learning almost every day about the reliability of these tests. And I participate in a number of clinical laboratory, um, what would you call them, chat rooms, I guess. And I can tell you that the doctors who are doing the tests are not as convinced as the people who give press conferences about how many tests we can do, how accurate the tests are, and how meaningful are the results. Mm. Now, as a clinician, as well as a scientist and a physician and a father, I really want an accurate test. 
Of course. And it can be done. It can be done. But it's not done by snapping your fingers and it's not done by slapping a label on a tube. Uh, forgive me for being so clear, but I, I think it is important for those of us who are laboratory physicians to point out that the test has to be validated as accurate before it is put into widespread testing. And what will be, I believe, the long-term and widespread surveillance testing will be the antibody test. And that's an IgM and IgG. There are many different flavors of antibodies, including the immediate response, which is IgM, and then the later and hopefully sustained response, which is IgG or IgA. So we do know enough to know if you are acutely ill and we want to know which specific uh, infectious agent or virus it is, the PCR test in the right hand is reasonably reliable. Although yesterday's news conference, not news conference, yes, this was an internal news conference about global people like me who are interested in, in reducing the risks. It's easier to take a throat swab than a nasal swab. But the nasal swabs detect 30% more accurate cases than the throat swab. Really? Well, now the sensitivity of the test in the throat is in question. But it's easy to get a throat swab. But you could be deceived. Mm. I've, I've, Deception is not recommended. Yeah, and I've with, without, without trying to go down, I, I clearly... I'm not educated in this space. So I'm not going to even form an opinion, but I have been reading that this RT-PCR test is it's called something, a surrogate test, which is not actually testing for a virus. It's, it's testing for genetic material that could indicate um, the presence of a virus and its amplification could create very high false positives, i.e. Um, are we, are we, are, are we um, documenting positive cases, which perhaps might not be positive because of the test's efficacy. What do you think to that? Well, that's where these words sensitivity and specificity come in. Specificity means if you don't have the problem, will the test be positive? And I have never been a geneticist. My friends are geneticists. I have always been a host infectious immune defense and repair study um, scientist at least the last three decades of my career. Um, and the bottom line is just exactly what I said before. Yes, you can amplify a tiny amount of something that is similar to, but not identical to. Remember, there are 18 other COVID viruses that the PCR technique could detect that are completely benign. So when we talk about the sensitivity of the test, it needs to be at least better than 0.9. And very few are. So right now, our ability to amplify a signal allows us to say the signal is strong. The meaning of the signal, if you talk to the best test developers, the best, the, the, the best PCR experts, they will tell you that you need more than just that test to be sure. Mm. So could we be over-diagnosing? Um, could we be over-counting right now? Well, we're both undercounting because the sensitivity isn't good enough and we're overcounting because the specificity isn't good enough. So, yes, both. Right. Okay. Okay. But you, you, what's your general sense of um, confidence in uh, – we're doing the best we can. We've, um, as you say, we're rushing to respond. Um, what's your level of confidence that we are, we are appropriately um, communicating 
to the public um, this pandemic in terms of its infectious rates across the globe. Um, Do you have high confidence in how we're reporting this information right now? Well, I would suggest that anyone who has a moment and wants to read, read Laurie Garrett's book called Betrayal of Trust. It's about the United States, but also the global public health system and how woefully underprepared we were for this COVID-19. And at the moment, we're not properly preparing for the next pandemic because for a variety of reasons, we're gonna see more novel infectious agents. And since we seem to have more and more hospitable people, you can easily conclude that we're gonna have more and more catastrophe. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Before we get into what I hope will be the more practical element of this discussion, we'll dig into the specifics of how we can help tactically and strategically improve uh, people's immune system. Is there any other part of this discussion leading up to that that you wish I would have, any questions you wish I would have asked or things you want to dip into before we get into it? No, no, there are many details and they're all important and I'm happy to address these um, as best I can. Now, when I don't have enough information or background to give you an answer, I'm happy to tell you that someone else who knows more can give you an answer. I often see people uh, with a microphone in front of them who are saying things that to me are somewhere between um, silly and absurd. Uh, Silly in the sense that they're claiming victory when we don't quite know what the question is and absurd because they're recommending therapies that turn out to have much more adverse consequences than proven benefit. Mm -hmm. So all you have to do is start from the premise that uh, the host doesn't matter. It's all about the infectious agent and you'll be in the soup we're in right now. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about the host then. So you've spoken, uh, you, you led the conversation quite eloquently in explaining some of the factors that are going to support and strengthen someone's immune system. But let's, remind our audience of what we said up front and maybe go into a bit of the reasoning why. So what are the, the as, as someone's here listening now and going, Steve, okay, I know I haven't been living the perfect life. I know I haven't been making all the right decisions. Maybe I've had too much processed food. Maybe I haven't been exercising enough. Maybe I haven't had enough sleep. Maybe I haven't been out in the sun much, blah, blah, blah. But right here, right now, I want to fix that. Tell me what I need to do today to get a good start on this. Uh, and I'll change whatever I need to change, lifestyle and nutrition. Where would, you, where would you start in speaking to that person? Well, I would suggest that they download our free PIH, that's Perk Integrative Health, PIH Academy Viral Risk Reduction Protocol. And it does explain in a paragraph each of the important pieces. It only goes on for a few pages. But it does point out that most people are marginally dehydrated because they don't get enough water and herbal beverages, and they get too much caffeine and or artificially sweetened beverages and or sugar beverages, all of which are not part of my healthy lifestyle. Uh, And yes, it's about what we eat and drink, think and do. If you have a healthy transit time, digestive transit time from the time you eat until you poop should be 12 to 18 hours. Typical transit time in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in the United States today is three to seven days. That's long enough for bad stuff to happen in your colon. Then we get to the essentials. Vitamin C, but in nature's form, 100% buffered, reduced L-ascorbate. 
actually coming out of Korea and other uh, sites that were um, intensively afflicted uh, in the beginning, it's clear that either oral or intravenous vitamin C, depending on the severity of the case, can be life-saving. But that's not the only thing we need, although that's important. We need polyphenolics. We need flavonoids and flavanols. These are the colorful items in foods, but most of them are very good for the food, but not bioavailable. And we recommend the safer bioavailable polyphenolics. And we've written chapters about this. Uh, we're we're going to do a third update of a chapter next year. But right now we have available, again, we download these to, on request. You need minerals like zinc and magnesium. You need sufficient B-complex to keep your urine sunshine yellow. You need to move. Walking turns out to be an excellent exercise. And yes, you can think about walking, and that's a good thing. But getting up and actually walking five to 10,000 steps at least a day is recommended. Then get restorative sleep. If you're tired, take a nap. But restorative sleep means setting yourself to sleep. For example, we routinely recommend a salt and soda bath, baking soda and Epsom salts, a half to one cup each in a warm tub of water. You soak for 20 minutes. During that time, five minutes of deep abdominal breathing to expand your lung capacity and 15 minutes of active meditation to see yourself in a healing environment. Then, once you get into bed, stretch. I recommend five minutes of stretching when you get into bed before sleep then five minutes when you wake up before you get out of bed, and you'd be amazed at how people who have sleep disorders have them go away when they just follow those simple restorative sleep hydration habits. We have self-assessments, so you can check your digestive transit time through betterlabtestnow.com. You can check your hydration status through the same betterlabtestnow.com uh, portal, website consumer portal that not only provides access to testing, but interpretation of a functional and actionable um, nature. And so we do know enough to know which are the essentials, the things we have to take in because our body can't make them. And we even know how much, because it's always the Goldilocks scenario, not too little, not too much, just right is just right. And yes, just right turns out to be a full topic for you know long discussion and study, but the bottom line is it's about what you eat and drink, think and do. And if you follow our guidelines, you will be dramatically less hospitable, less resistant. Uh, you will be more resistant um, and you'll be, whether it's COVID-19 or anything else infectious, less likely to be afflicted. What about if someone is struggling with a pre-existing condition already? So whether it be diabetes or uh, perhaps they hold, hold, they know they're holding too much weight and that's a risk factor in its own right, or they have one other type of condition that they're suffering with, taking meds for or not, but they're aware of that. Um, how quickly, oh, sorry, no, let me restate this. So they, they, they either have some condition they're aware of, or they know that their lifestyle hasn't yet really been particularly effective. Honestly, how quickly can we recover and strengthen someone's immune system? Can this, be, can this be turned around in days? Or if someone's particularly hospitable and, does, and lacks resiliency from a, a weakened immune system, is this a recovery of weeks, months, and years? Just trying to get a sense of uh, responsiveness. Yes, the responses are not instant. 
because it's taken most of us years to decades to accumulate our host hospitality. And when you talk about diabetes and weight issues, you're probably talking about the same population. The definition is a hemoglobin A1C that's elevated. That's the average blood, the average sugar stuck onto your proteins, in this case, a protein called hemoglobin, the one that carries oxygen. And Paul Gallup in the 1960s identified that if your hemoglobin A1C is above 5%, you're at progressively higher risk. If you follow my suggestions, within weeks to months, not overnight, but within weeks to months, your hemoglobin A1C will come down. And what I say is kind of simple. You're sweet enough as you are. Do not add sugar mm -hmm. to your diet. Now, you can have all the fresh fruit that is whole and, and, and has slow uptake of sugar, of course. That's a whole food. We're recommending whole foods, vine ripened, organic or biodynamic. My front yard is now an eight or nine year old biodynamic permaculture food forest. And my job is to watch the pollinators and when things are ripe to pick them. Now I have help. <laughs> but yes, we can choose to reverse years to decades of risk in a short period of time by following these guidelines. Um, in our immunology cell culture lab, we now have over 80,000 cases and have done over 25 million cell cultures and have helped people reverse uh, hospitality, reverse chronic illness. We have the most successful outcome study in type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes and fibromyalgia, muscle pain. So the people who say, oh, gosh, I know I'm hospitable because I don't feel very good, uh, but it's all over but the shouting. I disagree. Whatever age, it's a good time to start. Eating whole foods that you can digest, assimilate, and eliminate without immune burden, being well hydrated, which means you urinate every two hours during the day, keeping your urine sunshine yellow, indicating you have enough B-complex, doing a weekly C-cleanse to find out how much oxidative stress you're under and neutralizing it with ascorbate, nature's antioxidant, uh, premier antioxidant. Ascorbate is like the mother who sacrifices herself that all the other antioxidants can be regenerated. And so the reason we need more today of ascorbate in the fully buffered, fully reduced L form, nature's ascorbate, is because we have more toxin exposure. We are marinating in a sea of toxins. That's the 21st century birthright and challenge and opportunity. So if we respond proactively, we can become fairly quickly resilient and resistant. And if we just go along in the ways we have been, we are likely cruising for a bruising. Mm. I, I guess, Russ, that there are many people that would just like to hear you say that there is a supplement that combines uh, much of these, you know, important nutrients that are supportive to the immune system, and that and that alone will provide a bump and support for their immune system without taking ownership to correct uh, the lifestyle factors and the whole food nutritional factors that you've discussed. Talk to me whether you think doing that is actually productive or not. So I don't change what I eat, I don't change my lifestyle factors, but instead I now buy this uh, immune helping formula online. 
Well, for full disclosure, in the late 1980s, I developed a super multivitamin that has 40 active constituents in meaningful amounts because your body needs those, all of them, and in meaningful amounts. And when I said keep your urine sunshine yellow, what I was referencing was a super B, multi-mineral, mm. full cofactor, etc. And because it is my company that makes that, I tried to stay away from the commerce side, although I can tell you that what we did, we did it because we needed one supplement that was full disclosure at a time when the industry was full of opacity and potentially immune harming constituents, the binders, the fillers, the excipients, the flowing agents, the glues, the colorants, etc. So yes, you want a super multivitamin that keeps your urine sunshine yellow, then you need nature's ascorbate, then you need vitamin D, but most people have trouble of taking vitamin D up from their intestines, so they need to have drops under their tongue. Then you need to measure your urine pH in the morning after rest, and if it's below 6.5, you have metabolic acidosis, which makes you an at-risk person, and if you have enough magnesium and choline citrate, you will uh, keep that morning urine pH in the healthy 6.5 to 7.5 range. So yes, I too, and this get, I get asked this question, almost one out of two conversations comes down to, isn't there one thing that I can do without changing anything else that will make me dramatically better? Well, yes, having enough of the essentials is a good start, but it turns out if you tried to combine all of this into one pill potion or whatever, and we had to develop a novel delivery system called a Tabsule, which we showed in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial allowed for 100% uptake, whereas most vitamins are maybe 20 to 30% taken up at most and at best. So yes, we can do one thing at a time. I actually do not recommend that people try to do a makeover overnight. I want them to do a healthy makeover and change their habits because that determines your future. If you keep the same habits as the past, I can predict your future. If you change your habits, you will change your future. If you live in the past, you'll be depressed. If you live in the future, you'll be anxious. As a nowist, I recommend that people live in the moment and do what they can, the best that they can do at the moment, to confirm their commitment to life. Because this really is about caring enough about yourself to invest roughly 5% of your time, 72 minutes, turns out to be 5% of the day. If you will follow my recommendations for 72 minutes a day, which include eat, drink, think, do, and supplement, then systematically, and you can document this in laboratory, but also in function, you will be progressively healthier and resistant. If you just take enough super multi to keep your urine sunshine yellow, you'll be doing yourself a favor, mm -hmm. but you'll be uh, accepting only a small fraction of the potential. I guess if you're having a, a particularly inflammatory lifestyle and or um, diet that I, I, I guess you're, you're adding goodness, you're adding, you know, the icing on the cake, but you still have every, all the foundations in which are broken or causing issues, right? So if you have a highly processed diet and you stick on a multivit um the upside is going to be limited i'd expect well i'd say it a slightly different way 
when we talk about inflammation, we're talking about repair deficit. When we're talking about repair deficit inflammation, we're talking about a weakened host immune defense and repair system. Mm -hmm. Well, I recommend you have a robust immune defense and repair system and then inflammation goes away. I recommend that you address the causes of autoimmune self-attack and eat the foods you can digest, assimilate and eliminate without immune burden. And now the autoimmunity, that's diabetes and asthma, multiple sclerosis and eczema, psoriasis, et cetera, goes into remission. Mm -hmm. So it is about choice, it is about habit, it is about the way in which we wanna lead our life. And if you choose convenience, you will probably suffer. If you choose wholeness, you will probably thrive. Okay, you have led me to two final questions, Russ, uh -huh. and then we will close this. So you've mentioned um, vitamin C a couple of times, and mm -hmm. uh, I take a multivit every once in a while, not every day. Um, I have, I feel I have a particularly nutrient dense diet. We can speak about that as my second question, but let's talk about vitamin C. Um, I don't think I get much of that based on my dietary choices right now. Uh, you speak about whole food, natural vitamin C. Where do we get that from? Well, you, you get that from many foods, but in small amounts. Albertson Georgie, who is globally recognized as the man who first isolated ascorbate from Hungarian paprika, said, and I heard him because he was still active when I was a young student, in biology, Vitamin C ascorbate is as important as light and oxygen. That's kind of important. And now how much do you need? Do the C cleanse that we developed and that thousands of people have done over decades, and you'll find out how much oxidative burden you have that harms you or puts you at risk based on how much ascorbate it takes to cleanse or flush out toxins and fluid. So recognize that the 21st century is radically different than the 19th or 20th. We are marinating a sea of anti-nutrients. These are the oxidative um, pops, the persisting organic pollutants, uh, the VOCs, the vol volatile organic chemicals, the toxic metals, uh, the mold products, the radioisotopes, as well as distress. Every one of those functions to consume your essential nutrients especially vitamin C. Since vitamin C is the antioxidant that regenerates all others, that sets the energy potential of every cell, that activates the ATP energy molecule inside your cell, that keeps your battery working and rehabilitates it when it gets clogged up or choked up with toxic matter. So in regard to ascorbate, I would suggest that people read The User's Guide to Vitamin C, authored by Amory Levins and Eric Rasmussen, recently published on medium.com that you can download for free. And it goes in detail about why, what, it's the, it's the journalist story, who, what, where, when, how, why. Mm. And where, where do you get it from? What, what are nature's sources of vitamin C? Oh, well, the one we're most familiar with is citrus fruits. But it turns out that all whole foods have some vitamin C in them. It actually helps preserve the whole food. So eating a whole foods diet gets you more ascorbate vitamin C. Eating a fast food processed diet 
most of them are essentially devoid of vitamin C. So then you have scurvy or chronic scurvy, or you become scorbutic, you have gum problems and tooth problems, and you ache, and you don't get good restorative sleep even when you try to sleep, and you're, you snore at night, and there's myriad examples in function, if you observe people as they actually act, um, that confirm the need for ascorbic. And I know it's a controversial subject. I came as a skeptic to this field. I came to debunk what I now advocate, but the evidence was so overwhelming that I had to become as articulate as I could be a spokesman for this proactive, predictive, personalized primary prevention practice protocol. Because I see, I, I hear a lot of debate about vitamin C, actually, especially the guys that are keto or uh, following a carnivore diet. So um, they're really devoid for the most part in at least nature's uh, highest concentrations of vitamin C. And they know that they probably don't get a lot. Yeah, I know these people are not dying of scurvy. And they make claims that um, there isn't necessarily a lot of scientific literature that points towards megadosing of vitamin C to be particularly essential. And I know the debate goes on. Um, but do you have a sense of, um, could you have a high animal based diet, uh, minimally consuming of plant based products and get sufficient vitamin C if you lead, lead a healthy lifestyle? Or do you think that would be ultimately leading to deficiency? Well, if you follow a keto lifestyle, briefly, you will put yourself into starvation that is marked by ketones in the urine, and you will get more lean. Mm, that's okay. When you say living a keto lifestyle, if you take it seriously, you will be in continuous starvation, and I do not recommend that, although you can with a very intensive uh, um, personalized plan, be both keto and alkaline. So keto not only means ketones and ketosis, it means starvation at the cellular level. And more importantly, it means you're tearing yourself down. So I have helped people with keto diets and lifestyles recover. I understand the desire to reduce your fat pad and be more lean. But I will tell you that by definition, the keto approach means that you're going to turn amino acids, that's what you make protein out of, that's what you make muscle out of, you're going to turn amino acids into energy, you're going to waste ammonia, you'll be in negative nitrogen balance and starvation. And the, the scurvy you're thinking about, sir, is the you know 17th, 18th century limeys uh, mm -hmm. on the Navy. They took yep. in no vitamin C and they died. And it was bad for business as well as for defense to have your sailors and, and, and soldiers dying uh, simply because of a lack of vitamin C. And it turned out it took 25 years, but just putting a lemon or a lime or an orange <laughs> on the plate for the person once a day dealt with the acute scurvy that you're talking about. I'm talking about chronic scurvy. Read vitamin C uh, by Irwin Stone, a book on vitamin C called The Healing Factor by Irwin Stone. Chronic Chronic subclinical, subacute, but repair deficit inflammation is a form of scurvy. People with gingivitis and, and dental problems have a form of scurvy. People who have swelling in their body have a form of repair deficit scurvy until proven otherwise. 
So it turns out that most of the people who talk about vitamin C can barely spell it. They don't know the difference between synthetic and nature's forms. Uh, we have been among those who have documented the value of nature's forms and the unhelpful, often significantly unhelpful versions that are called workalikes that in my experience, clinically and professionally don't work. So yes, it's a more than a 15 minute discussion, but the bottom line is that what we call inflammation and autoimmunity are variant expressions of chronic vitamin deficit, especially ascorbate deficit and scurvy. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what it is. Now, when people talk about the benefit or non-benefit of vitamin C, they usually do not distinguish the synthetic or the work-alike forms that are damaged and are not nature's form. In contrast to what I am saying, the fully buffered reduced L-ascorbate, which means it's produced under a nitrogen blanket. And our best estimate is that less than 2% of all the vitamin C that's sold in the world today is nature's form. And the only form that I recommend is nature's form because I know the safety and benefit of that. And I am very concerned about these uh, damaged forms that might actually be unhelpful or anti-nutrients. Mm, I think that's a very good distinction because uh, I don't think we often think about quality of our supplementation. And uh, as you say, if, we are, if we're building studies, um, writing papers based on not particularly effective supplementation and we get results that are one way or the other. How can we trust those? Um, so I think that's a fair, pretty fair point, Russ. Uh, my last question then is really, um, you spoke about the right diet that you can assimilate, eliminate. Uh, I can't recall the exact terminology you just used. Um, but what does that, how does that express itself for you and the people that you see? What, what is the kind of diet format that you believe offers the most robust human health? Well, since 1983, my immunology cell culture lab has been accepting one ounce specimens taken in a very specific way. So they're ex vivo. Ex vivo means what we observe in the laboratory is exactly what happens inside the body. They're not in vitro. They are ex vivo. And with that one ounce of blood, we can now do over 300 cell cultures foods, preservatives, medications, toxins, environmental substances, everything down to including dander, hair, and feathers, any of which could be burdening and reducing your host competence with regard to immune repair and defense. So what we recommend and what we've been offering to through colleagues and through research studies for decades is the LRA by ELISA ACT test. LRA stands for lymphocyte response assay. Lymphocytes are white blood cells. But we need a blood specimen that has no blood clotting activation and no damage in transport and the cells can't run out of their own metabolic energy. It's a very complex process that we validated in the early 80s and have been offering in clinical practice globally for some decades. Um, if you do not want to send a blood specimen and get a report about what to substitute and where you would get hidden exposures and what you can uh, consume to have a healthier digestion, transit time, and a microbial ecology in your gut, if you don't want to do the tests, eat more whole. 
eat whole foods in a wide variety of ways. And if you feel a specific food makes you feel worse instead of feeling better, well, go to a different one. I recommend high fiber foods, lots of chilies and lentils and dal and other things you have to chew. If you can throw food in your mouth and tell your stomach to look out, here it comes, you have your fiber deficient, your prebiotic fiber deficient. It turns out we need prebiotic fiber. We need probiotic good bugs to crowd out the bad bugs. Because I can tell you personally, because I am a bit of a microbiologist, I'm often exposed to a pathogen. I've often been at meetings where everyone except me got sick. And the reason I believe I didn't get sick was not because I'm nicer or innately stronger, but because I take my prebiotic fiber, I take my probiotic organisms, I take my symbiotic recycled glutamine, and then I'm careful. If, if, you, if you offer me a whole food, I'm likely to enjoy it. If you offer me something that is convenient and highly processed, I'm likely to take a pass. And when you say whole food, are there any whole, whole foods which you prioritize, said another way, are there any whole foods that you try to avoid because of toxicity well, or concern specific to you or generally? Well, in regard to myself, every six months, I have the LRA by ELISA Act blood test and I follow the plan. And I have been, even though I developed that procedure, I have been surprised in my own testing every six months at the things that come up. And sometimes I'm surprised. But I can tell you that not only my feeling and functioning, but my other laboratory measures improve when I follow the plan. Now, with regard to foods, assuming you're going to have whole foods and not processed foods, I think organic is better and biodynamic is better yet. So if you can get biodynamic staples or biodynamic components, I belong to a community-supported agriculture CSA that happens to be biodynamic. Um, if you can have a kitchen garden, you'd be surprised how much good nutritious food you can grow in a very short, small space. You need a little sun, but a little space. Um, so yes, uh, if you default to the packaged and processed foods, you are asking for ill health. One of my many teachers was Beatrice Trum Hunter, a nutritionalist um, who recommended that we shop around the perimeter of the market. That's where the food is. Mm -hmm. And if you have to go down an aisle, be careful. If you eat foods that are um, highly processed, you are burdening your digestion and making you hospitable. And yes, those highly processed foods are designed for the crave factor. They have a certain kind of fat, salt, and sugar that addicts your brain to want more. I don't think that's how I would like my body to select what I'm going to consume. So we have whole foods in a wide variety of ways from healthier sources. And no, we're not perfect and don't need to be. Your body is really very forgiving if you pay attention to it. If you ignore it, it'll come back and snap at you or, or you know, make you ill to get your attention. Um, and too many of us believe that if we're not well, we should go and get a prescription or a procedure. And I'm saying use physiology before pharmacology, use nature, nurture, and wholeness, 
live and be well and enjoy. That is a, a perfect statement. I wholly, wholly agree. And when we talk about whole foods, um, it's inferred, I guess, that you're talking about fruits and vegetables. Are you also talking about, are you also talking about uh, animal-based products as well? That's elective. I'm saying the healthiest people that I know eat very low on the food chain. They eat fruits and vegetables. They have seeds and nuts and sprouts. Mm -hmm. They have herbs and edible flowers. They have a wide variety of whole foods and a wide variety of ways. And if every once in a while your body says lamb chop, or even if your body says ice cream soda every once in a while, and I emphasize once in the long while, enjoy it. Why, why do you say once in a while to animal-based products? Well, it takes 50 pounds of grain that is highly um, manipulated, the soy, corn, and wheat that the animals eat has a variety of things that I exclude from a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're telling me that this is kosher and halal and it was raised and uh, on a perfect grass-fed diet and never ate any grain in its life, I might enjoy that. Okay. In my freezer, we actually have some lamb that qualifies for that. Now, it's a premium product. There's not much available. First of all, the animal has to be humanely killed. Read Taylor Grandin's work. Look at what they do at the abattoir, at the place where the animals are rendered. It's cruel. Um, so if you are a humanist, then you would want to have only those foods that were uh, healthfully produced. Now, that could include some animal products, but you would bias yourself towards the totally grass-fed, humanely rendered yeah. uh, products. And here in the United States, I only know of three sources, one of them not too far from me. There are sources in Europe. Um, uh, anthroposophic medicine would advocate for this. Biodynamic farming would advocate for this. A biodynamic farm has animals. Usually you don't eat them, but the animals are important to the fertility of the whole ecosystem. Of course, yeah. Um, so I'm not being categorical. You don't need to become a vegetarian or a vegan. What you do need to do is eat the foods that you can digest, assimilate and eliminate without immune burden. And if the food concentrate, if the animal meat or fish concentrated toxins, then you should take in antitoxin nutrients because you're going to be exposed. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, just full disclosure, um, I have a, I have a meat, uh, no, it's meat heavy. I have an animal based heavy diet. Um, I eat fruits and vegetables. I'm not carnivore. I'm not keto, uh, but I do favour animal based products. Uh, try and source mm -hmm. them as efficiently uh, and with um, appropriate uh, view on quality. So I just wanted to make that clear that I'm asking these questions not not to create debate or or, or Put you in a in a vulnerable position where we're we're back and forth on this, uh, but my audience know that that is uh, it's my preference to feeling vital and energetic, and I must say I, I do feel both those those feelings with a high on a animal based diet of eggs and beef and salmon and so forth. Um, so it's just interesting, isn't it? Because there are there are obviously advocates of that kind of diet lifestyle that would suggest that you can get uh, lots of nutrients with minimal uh, toxins in a 
in a more a meat heavy or uh, animal based diet not devoid of plants but uh, minimizing plants and it's, it's interesting to see where that discussion is going to go over the next 10 years or so do you have any points oh, on that I, well i can tell you having seen that discussion or that that uh, point of view come and go come and go come and go it comes for a period of time and then the consequences become clear now what you said i can be supportive of because of what you said you favor the healthier animal products or fish so do i but check your morning urine ph after restorative sleep check your digestive transit time check your hydration status all of this relates to the foods you eat because if you eat meat then it will consume nutrients in order to be digested and helpful to you if you're taking in enough nutrients to compensate for that congratulations Okay. Okay. I will be exploring that idea. Uh, I think we have run this uh, long enough. It's been absolutely fantastic. It's been uh, an incredible education for me. And um, I'm blessed to have uh, your wisdom on this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Jaffe. Um, could you just make mention to where people are going to be able to find your work? Um, I'm going to do my best to scour this podcast back and make references to the things you had stated previously. But where can people get started with you and follow your work? Yes, a place to get started would be drrusselljaffe.com. That's a website. And our YouTube channel, Dr. Russell Jaffe, where we have, I believe, posted over 100 short and some longer format video discussions. Um, on our websites, like perk.com, you'll find information about better supplements, and why they're essential. At ELISAACT, E-L-I-S-A-A-C-T, dot com, you'll find the immunology, the cell culture work, the, the way of testing so that what you're eating is immune compatible for you. So it's a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate both your question, Steve, and your quantum being the voice of the consumer. Um, and I hope that I have been clear um, uh, without being pedantic. No, you, you've been perfect. Honestly, it has been a true pleasure. We'll get this out pretty quickly, considering its relevance to the world right now. And as soon as we do, I'll make sure that you're aware and your team are aware of that. So thank you. Um, keep well, keep safe. And thank you for everything you're doing. You're the same. Be well and happy. Wow. Dr. Russell Jaffe is a trove of knowledge and information as it relates to immune health. And I don't know about you, but I'm more calm, reassured, and confident as it relates to my health and my family's health after listening to his guidance and perspective of COVID-19 and what we need to do to stay robust, resilient, and healthy through these trying times. And if you like this discussion and you want to dig a little deeper, then let me recommend you something. I have spent the last couple of years both interviewing people and doing tons of research to codify my understanding of what it takes to be your best, to live your best life and have the most energy, vitality. And nutrition, of course, plays a significant part, but so does appropriate rest and calmness. So does exercise. So does mindset, life habits, your physique. All these things absolutely matter. But trying to piece this all together for yourself can take a hell of a lot of time there's so much confusion, there's so much misinformation, it is a bit of a maze. So if you want to get a fast track view into what it takes to be your best, 
I would highly recommend that you check out the Be Your Best journey. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is something that I've labored over. I believe it is truly of value to most people, whether you are already optimizing your life or need that reboot. It starts slow and it builds over a course of 100 days. I'm incredibly proud of it. The feedback has been phenomenal so far and I hope you enjoy it. So if you want a guided tour of everything that I've learned and everything that we stand for at Adaptation, the Be Your Best journey is absolutely something that I think can help. So go check it out. Let me know what you think. And until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.